Morning, morning, morning. If you haven't had a chance yet, this morning you will need a Bible. So there's some Bibles at the front here. There's some Bibles on the side. When you grab the Bible, if you've got one of those green ones, it's page 1089. That's what we're on today, okay? It's John 20. John 20, and it's the penultimate week in our preaching series through the Gospel of John. It's a series that we actually started right back in May. And last week, we looked at the crucifixion, Jesus' death on the cross and what it means for us. And this week, we get to every preacher's dream. It's the one that when you open the rotor and have a look, you're like, yes, the resurrection. Come on. It's the one. So uh, hopefully, you're as excited as I am today as we open up God's Word and have a look at the resurrection. Now, I don't know what you might define as the most historic thing you've witnessed, that kind of I was there then moment that uh, just sticks in your mind. If I were to ask you this morning, what have you lived through that you think will become a defining historical moment, the thing that people might write history books about, or the thing that might be taught at school in years to come about this period of history, what do you think was your I was there for moment? I was reflecting on that question myself, and there were a few things that came to mind. I very clearly remember kind of Y2K, the tick from the 90s into the new millennium, and all the worry about what might happen to our computers and all those sorts of things. So I think that might be an I was there moment. Uh, You might think back to the kind of 9-11 terror attacks and what happened at the World Trade Center. I'm not going to labor on this point, but you might think about Brexit. I think that might come up in homework for kids in years to come, the sorts of things they might be doing. Or you might think of things like COVID and all the lockdowns we went through as quite a historic moment. I actually remember saying to Emma that we should try and remember as much as possible because I'm pretty sure our grandkids are going to come to us one day and say, I've got to do a project on COVID. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like? And so I've been trying to log in my memory all those things like banging pots and pans on the doorstep for the NHS or working from home in my really nice blazer and shirt with sweatpants on the bottom. Or there was a really weird week. I don't know if you remember where everybody got really oddly into sea shanties. I'm like, you know, Maybe that's something that I can bring up in somebody's homework in years to come. Undoubtedly, it was a historic time. It might even be the historic great escape season of 2009, where AFC Bournemouth stayed in the Football League with thanks to a Steve Fletcher goal. It started them on the way to Premier League glory. Uh, It's a historic moment, whether you like football or not, because I think it's done something to our town, that sense that we've got a Premier League club among us now. Uh, There's a bit of an identity for the town there. Or there might even be the death of the Queen, that once-in-a-lifetime moment for a lot of people, where we actually saw the death of a monarch and uh, a new monarch coming to sit on the throne. Also a historic moment for us. So whatever you might think is a historic moment in your life, those things that you log just in case somebody asks you about them one day. It has absolutely nothing on the events that were witnessed by the people in our reading today. And I would argue that the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus is the single most defining moment in human history. Today, uh, in these verses that we're going to read, the the people might not have known at the time how historic it is, though when we're reading, I think some suspected, you know, a little bit like I did with Emma and COVID, like, I might want to log this one. This This might be something to remember, you know. But they are witnesses to the defining moments of human history, and that's amazing. And they've been recorded that we might have an insight into this eternity defining moment as well. And so when we open up our Bibles, that is what we're going to read now. If you're a Christian, Jesus' death and resurrection have had a defining outcome on your life. You're in relationship with the Father through Jesus' action on the cross and his resurrection to defeat sin and death so that you can have a relationship with God now and forever. 
And even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, firstly, thank you so much for being here this morning, and I, I hope to bring clarity to what we as Christians do believe. So please do stay with me, because I do honestly believe that Jesus' life and death and resurrection has a profound effect on the world and the way that Christianity has shaped the world around us. And you can actually have a look at that from things like our calendars and the way that they work, or uh, the advance of education and knowledge and art, and even the laws that govern our country all can kind of stem back to their roots in Christianity. Christianity's had a profound and lasting effect on human history, and I would argue that this, what we're looking at today, is the most defining moment of it. Last week, in fact, I took a little trip across to Rome, and we were walking around the city, and we were looking at some of the history of the church, and the paintings, and the buildings, and the historic sites, and as you do so, you're looking at these pictures, and you're like, wow, that's been inspired by moments like moments today that we're reading about. Artists drawing these beautiful things. I mean, Christianity has so impacted that city that you walk around a corner, and you're like, what's this now? For goodness sake, I didn't even realize this one was here. Like, we're going to have to go in and have a look at this now as well. You know, it's had this profound effect. We saw the Sistine Chapel and Fame. Uh, artworks by Raphael and ruins of buildings that would have stood in the period that we're reading about as we go through the Gospel of John. It was an incredible thing to see. So as we look at the text this morning, I want you to see the foundational and defining importance of it, to see it in its historical context and to reflect on what it means for you today as well. If you're a Christian, I hope to be able to connect you again to the resurrection of Jesus and its importance in your life and how you live it. And if you're not a Christian, my hope is that you would examine what's being said today with fresh eyes, that you might see something of Jesus for you in the scriptures today as well. As I said, these verses we're reading about talk about the most profound moments in human history. And I believe each of us has an active role today in assessing what we might do in light of them. So we're going to get to some reading. We're going to do it in four chunks. And Emma's going to come and do the reading for us. So that's why you need to keep a finger in your Bible today, because we're going to keep coming back to it. So we're going to look at the first 10 verses of chapter 20, uh, starting with the empty tomb. Over to him. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Great, thanks so much. So the first 10 verses there, and I'll pause and make my first reflection. I think it's interesting that in the accounts of the resurrection in all four gospels, that's Matthew and Mark and Luke and John in our Bibles, we're told that the events happened on the first day of the week. Now, for most of us in the UK, the first day of the week, I'd imagine in your heads, you think of as a Monday, mostly because it's centered around school or around work or whatever it is you do, and it's the natural starting point that you change gear out of the weekend into something different after a little bit of a rest period. Now, I'm aware I'm speaking to people with all sorts of different work and family contexts, but I think if we stopped people along the old road this morning and said, what's the first day of the week? Most people would say, Monday. 
Now, it's, I think there's something important for us to learn here about how we reorient our thinking along the lines of the Gospels here. And perhaps our weeks should start like they do here on a Sunday. Because as we reach Sunday, the center of our mornings and coming to church and worshiping Jesus, I think there's something helpful that it can do for our thinking about what the rest of the week looks like. Rather than the start of your week being waking up, the alarm's gone off, you've missed it, you're already late, you've got to make the kids' lunchboxes, you're running out to work, you haven't ironed your shirt, at least that's what it's like in my family. Actually, Sunday being the start of the week means that we wake up and we come and give glory to God, because that's what we come and do on a Sunday. And so... I think there's something about our church gatherings that are so important as a moment where we can come and lift our eyes away from our own circumstances and declare that God is king of our lives. When we come together, we rightly put the focus where it belongs, on God. And to start our weeks like that says something about everything else that's to follow. It's God first and the rest second. And so as we sit here today, perhaps it's time to think of now as the start of our week. Welcome to day one of the start of your week. We're here to give glory to God. And what a great start it is as we look at this account of the resurrection. There's something else by way of context I just want to point out before we dive into the story properly. And that's as we've read the account, the account of the resurrection sat here in Paul in 2023, we've got the benefit of hindsight. Actually, you know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've read this story before. You'll have known it. We'll have told it on Easter Sunday. Um, most of us will have some understanding of what happens next. But if you were living through this story without the knowledge of what happens next, without the hindsight, it would have looked very different. And we pick up in John today where we left off last week. Jesus was crucified, and that's a horrible form of Roman torture. It's where we get our word for excruciating from. It really is brutal. And we read as Jesus died to fulfill scripture and to take the punishment of sin, for sin on behalf of all humanity. His side was pierced in confirmation that he was unequivocally dead. He was unrevivable by every human definition. It's the moment on the hospital TV dramas where they pull the covers over the top. That's it. It's over. There's nothing more you can do. It's done. We read that Jesus' body was taken by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and treated as per Jewish burial customs. It was wrapped and laid in a tomb from Friday through to Sunday, that first day of the week, that's where it stayed, dead. From a worldly point of view, that is it, isn't it? Death is the end. There's a funeral and a burial or a cremation and a point of finality, and then you go home, and there's nothing that you can do to change the finality that death brings. They call it the universal statistic, don't they? 100% of us will die, and there's nothing that we can do about it. We might try our best to defeat aging by using all sorts of lotions and potions. For instance, I'm actually 70. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm 22. I'm 22. But... No matter what we can do, the advances in medicine, and I'm so grateful for them, at some point, death for each one of us is inevitable. That's it. And the reason I labor on this point isn't to cause upset, but to help you to, to see yourselves in this story. The people who witnessed Jesus' death, those who placed him in the tomb, that was a moment of grief. There was nothing that they could do through their own strength to change what had happened. No amount of medical advance could change what had happened. And so what we read here at the start of chapter 20 in the book of John is that those who loved Jesus were coming to pay their respects and then panicking, because, not because Jesus had risen, but because they thought that the Romans had taken his body. On seeing the grave as it was, it was obvious that it wasn't a grave robbery. The grave clothes were too orderly for that. In fact, it's here that the disciple who Jesus loved, that's our author, John, believed. That's what the passage said. He believed. 
And here, for the first time since Jesus' death, we have hope as John sees the scene and concludes that something entirely more special must have taken place. As a total aside, I love how the Bible records little small details of stories for us to see. And I've amused myself very much this week at the thought that John found it important to record that he beat his mate running there, you know? Like there was that point where he was like, uh, and then we both ran, but obviously I got there first, you know, that was me. I can imagine it being the sort of thing that uh, if I was writing an account of Rich and I running into the church this morning and I was writing it down afterwards, I'd be like, and I absolutely battered him. I got there, I got there first, you know. But actually, I think, I think even in those, those little details, I think they're they're really, really important for us to grasp hold of because for me, it helps me to believe because we're not reading a story. This isn't a fairy tale that somebody's made up. It's an account of what happened, play by play by play. And that's the way that it's written. And you can see it in that way, which is why things like, and I got there first, get recorded in there because that's what happened. It's a historical account. It's a history defining account of what's happened. The empty tomb is such a key piece of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus that one commentator, Don Carson, puts it this way. Historically, the preaching and rapid growth of the early church are alike unexplainable apart from the empty tomb. Even on the doubtful supposition that the first Christians were dupes or hallucinating enthusiasts, the Jewish authorities, though they had every incentive to do so, couldn't come up with the body of the man whose execution they'd organized. It would have stopped Christianity in its tracks if the authority had simply presented evidence that Jesus hadn't risen. No worldwide movement, no spread of the gospel, because there would be evidence that it's not true. But instead, the evidence we find and the evidence we're reading points to an empty tomb because of a resurrected Jesus. And there's no evidence to the contrary. And as we're about to read, the evidence keeps stacking up that what John first believes here is historical truth. And that's why the resurrection is so important for us, because Jesus' death paid for sin, and Jesus' resurrection defeated death. It's the resurrection that gives us hope, as I hope to explain. So to help think about how we might react to the resurrection, we're going to look at three different reactions in the stories. The reaction of Mary Magdalene, the reaction of the disciples, and the reaction of Thomas, as we journey our way through the rest of John 20, and how it might help, in turn, for us to think about how we might view a resurrected Jesus as well. So let's dive in. We're going to look at Mary's reaction first. So it's back over to Emma. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around Um, She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Great, thanks, Sam. So John saw the tomb and believed, and here Mary sees Jesus, and she believes too. The evidence is unequivocal. The man that Mary Magdalene had seen many times before was stood unmistakably before her eyes again. 
But let's take this encounter from the top, because Mary didn't believe when John did, and here we find her distraught. For her, it's all over. That point of finality that we spoke about had been reached, and Jesus was gone. She wasn't looking for a risen Jesus, but for his body. Her first reaction here is one of grief, someone who's grieving a lost loved one. And what happens next is perhaps the most profound encounter in all of scripture and in all of history. It's this amazing moment. Uh, There's a commentator, F.D. Bruner, who writes about it in a way that is more eloquent than I could ever put it myself. So I'm going to read it here quickly for you. In the one or two seconds this turn took, where she turned and saw Jesus for who he was, I imagine the world shifting ever so slightly on its axis. And at about this turn, one second midpoint trajectory, history too, moved all almost imperceptibly from BC to AD. A second before this turn, there's a woman in the deepest human despair, in the agonizing presence of inconquerable death. A second after the beginning of this turn, there's a woman in the deepest possible human elation, in the presence of the death-conquering central figure of history. The rush must have come over this woman in her two-second turn is unimaginable. She's the first person ever to experience the personal presence of the risen Lord. When she turned to him in this moment, human history took a turn to a responsible hope for the vincibility of death and so to the conquest of the meaningless. It's a very cool quote, isn't it, hey? A history-changing encounter as Mary is the first person to see the risen Jesus with her own eyes, to be eyewitness to that historic event and to see someone she knew and loved unmistakably alive and stood before her. She saw Jesus for who he is, God. Mary's eyes were the first to witness the most historic thing that has ever happened. I love how Bruno so eloquently puts it. A moment's turn brings impossible despair to exuberant elation. From uh, life from death and victory from hopelessness. History and humanity will never be the same again. And Mary's eyes were the first to grasp it. That's our response to what we're reading today. When we come face to face with the evidence of a risen Jesus who has fulfilled God's rescue plan for humanity by rising to defeat sin and death and fulfilled scripture, we have to open our eyes and recognize Jesus for who he is. Kenyan theology professor Samuel Ngewa uh, calls this a time for worship. Mary now testifies, I've seen the Lord. For those here who are Christians, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that he's risen from death to life, and we've experienced Jesus with us too. Wasn't it a beautiful moment this morning when Paul asked us, raise your hands if you know, if you've experienced this truth that we're singing about this morning. We know this. We've experienced it. We have felt it in our bones. We know the truth of this to be true. How amazing it is that Mary sees it with her own eyes for the very first time, and we know and have experienced and believe in the risen Jesus as well. Isn't that amazing, isn't it? It's a time for worship. If you don't yet know Jesus, if you don't know that hope, then you too can turn today and see the risen Jesus for who he is and believe that he died and rose for you as much as he did for me and anybody else here this morning. Mm. Mary despaired, and then Mary saw, and then she believed, and then she testified. Let's have another look at the next reaction. This time we're going to look at the reaction of the disciples and see how they reacted. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. 
Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Thank you. Imagine being witness to this next scene then. You're in a room with your friends and all of a sudden, Jesus, the one you know had died, appears right among you. Surprise! I'm here. Uh, One of my favorite people in the whole world is my Uncle Andrew. And uh, when I was younger, my uncle moved to the US to go and get married and set up life in Florida instead of the UK here on the South Coast. And it was really hard to see someone that we loved move so far away. But it did mean that we got the odd visit to go and see him. And those times were really, really special. And something that he used to do from time to time when we were kids was book a flight over, but not tell anyone he was coming. And then he took great delight in like jumping out of a wardrobe and being like, I'm here! (laughs) And there was this moment of kind of elation as this guy that we loved jumped out and we saw him for the first time in a very long time. I actually, once when I was at university, managed to get my own back because my parents were going to Florida. And I told everybody, I can't come, I'm so sorry, and then booked a ticket and went and surprised everyone. I was like, finally, I've got my own back. Uh, It's those moments where surprise turns to joy, and that's the reaction for the disciples. Their surprise quickly turns to joy as they too examine the evidence of the person in front of them, this time looking at the marks on Jesus' body that correspond with the marks inflicted on him on the cross, to see his hands with the nail marks and to see his side where the spear was inserted. To be in the room with Jesus, who you followed for years, day and night, who you'd recognize as clearly as your closest friend or family member. When my Uncle Andrew jumped out of the wardrobe, it was unmistakably him because I knew him and I loved him. And, uh, and that, they had that same reaction, this, that it's unmistakably Jesus in that moment that they see. There's no deceiving this group of people. If anyone were to see Jesus and know him, it's the disciples, and they do. And it's important because what we're viewing isn't some ghost or hologram or group hallucination. They could see and touch and examine Jesus' body and know that it's not some sort of spiritual visitation. It's resurrection from death back to life. And there are at least 10 pieces of evidence in the New Testament showing that Jesus had a physical body after resurrection, including things like preparing and eating food. He really was there. This is Jesus resurrected. And their reaction, our passage tells us they're overjoyed. My friends, the news of resurrection should bring us joy because a physically risen Jesus is evidence that Jesus has done it, that he's defeated sin's grip on our lives and that death has no hold for the Christian because those who believe in this Jesus now receive eternal life with the Father. Death is no longer the end of the story and eternity of joy is instead. And that's something to give us hope now and a joy now too while we await that day. We've got that amazing hope and we can celebrate the resurrection this morning as we remind ourselves that it's good news for us today. Again, that quote, this is a time for worship. When we come face to face with the risen Jesus, it's time to worship. Isn't that amazing, hey? One final reaction for us, and this time it's the reaction of Thomas. And this might be one that you know a little bit more, but Em's going to help us out one last time. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. 
Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus. Right. Oh, sorry. sorry. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Our final response is an important one because I think it's one that many of us can sympathize with. Because for Thomas, he hears the excitement from his friends, the buzz around town that Jesus is back, but he won't settle with that news until he's seen it for himself. I bet he was really gutted to have missed that meeting, right? Of all the meetings that you sleep in for. Uh, It's typical, isn't it? The one time that you choose to do something else and the whole town's talking about it. Must have been hard to wait an entire week with those nagging doubts about what was really true. But Thomas definitely didn't miss the next meeting. His alarm was set. He was going to be there to see what happened. And in his grace, Jesus came to silence Thomas's doubting. I want you to do me a favor for a moment. Right now, take your hands out in front of you and clasp them together in your own hands and give them a rub and feel them hand in hand like that. Feel those hands? Hold them in your hands. Thomas is given the opportunity to examine the evidence for himself, to feel the marks in Jesus' hands, to feel them as physically as you're feeling your own hands in front of you. Now, there's no doubting what is real. Thomas could feel it and know and see and experience it in that moment. Again, Paul, I thought your contribution this morning was so helpful. We know and have experienced God so we can stand and sing and declare truth about it and join Thomas as he declares, my Lord, my God. He sees Jesus for who he truly is. He's got the unequivocal evidence in his hands. For Thomas, it was a time to worship. And this is the response we have when we come face to face with the risen Jesus. We worship. And that's what I want you to remember from today's message. When we get to the account of the resurrection when we see what Jesus has done for us, uh, defeating sin and death and rising to new life. We we worship. We come face to face with the risen Jesus and we worship. Now there's one final reminder I want to leave us with in how we respond today because this chapter of John also gives us the title of our preaching series and a reminder of why we've spent the last seven months looking at the Gospel of John. And these are found at the end of the chapter in verses 30 and 31. I'll read these to you. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These are written that you might believe in Jesus. And that's the point. That's the point of this whole book. That's the point of the last seven months. That's the point of all the preparation and the work that we've done. We don't come here and stand up so that we can provide some sort of entertainment. We come here and stand up that you may believe. And that, if you do believe, you may go on believing. Our response is laid out for us. These things are written for us to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he came to earth, that he lived the perfect life, he fulfilled scripture, that he died on a cross to take the punishment for humanity's wrongdoing and rose to life, resurrected, to defeat sin and death so that it no longer has a hold on us. Christians, we can come to the risen Jesus this morning and give praise and thanks for what he's done and the profound impact that it's had on us. 
We can look upon and see Jesus this morning, who is greater than anything else in our lives, greater than any anxiety or worry, more powerful than anything we're facing, and who loves us so much that he died and rose again, that we might know the Father and have a hope and a security through Jesus now and forever. We can be overjoyed as our reaction. In a moment, we're going to come and take communion. And when we do, it's a good reminder for us that when we come to the table and take the bread and take the wine, we're not mourning a death, but we're celebrating risen life. We can eat and we can remember and we can celebrate. We can stand assured in this today. We can come back now and praise and give thanks for the hope that we have and see Jesus afresh for who he is. In other words, and as we've said again and again and again, the reaction is that this is a time for worship. And when we come back now and sing, we celebrate all that Jesus is and all that he's done and that he is risen. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian yet, and if you're still exploring the claims that Christianity makes, then I'm so grateful that you've sat and listened to me for the last half hour. And my last plea to you is that you might do what's instructed here, that these words that we've read and the message that I've preached and the claims that Jesus makes and the gospel that's proclaimed by churches all around the world and has done for centuries is also that you might believe as well. You've got an invitation this morning to come to Jesus for the first time, to have that same hope that Mary and the disciples and Thomas had when they saw Jesus, to have the same security and identity that billions around the world, a hundred of us in the room, have this morning. It's an anchoring foundation for our lives and the most historic moment in history for us to react to. I know it can be hard. You might find yourself a little bit like Thomas still, wanting more proof to see it for yourself. And that's absolutely fine. And I'd encourage you to just keep exploring and keep asking questions. And there's room for that here at Gateway. But I would encourage you to examine the evidence for yourself because I truly do believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most defining moment in human history. And it's an important thing to have an opinion on. If it's the most defining moment in human history, you've got to form an opinion on I also want to encourage you to listen again to Jesus' words to Thomas, who was told to stop doubting and believe. Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me, yet have believed. There'll come a day where we come face to face with Jesus again, but we can still examine these claims and evidences that we've been given and be blessed by believing through faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So you can look at this historical moment, the defining moment for humanity, and know that this moment was done for you. That if you believe in the truth of it, you might be forgiven of all you've done wrong and free and secure in the hope of Jesus as well. And if you say amen for the first time this morning, you can come find me so that we can talk about it together as well. I'm going to pray for us. And yeah, you do have that opportunity to join us as Christians as we pray. And if you do, I really do hope that you come and find me. So will you all stand with me? Is that okay? Remember, this was written so that we might believe and so that we might go on believing. So I'm going to pray to that end, and then we're going to come and we're going to worship. Is that all right? Oh, Lord, I do thank you that we have had the privilege of opening up your word and looking at this history-defining moment. This most glorious, most amazing point in human history that has had an impact on every moment ever since and will do all throughout eternity. And we've been able to stay here today to open your words, to look and to read and to examine. And Lord, I'm so grateful for that. I thank you, Lord, that we've been able to examine these claims and know them to be true. That you've revealed yourself to us, that we can come and worship and celebrate and know and trust because we've experienced and we've got testimony of your goodness in our lives, that this is the truth, and that's true for so many of us. 
But Lord, I also pray now, would you just come and reveal yourself to each one of us now? Come and reveal yourself to each one of us that as we come back and worship, we might be able to do so in the knowledge of the truth of who you are and who we are in you. That we are forgiven and free. That sin and death have no grip on us anymore. Thank you, Lord, that that's what we believe. Thank you, Lord, that that's what we trust in. Thank you, Lord, that that's what we're anchored in. Thank you, Lord, that that's what gives us hope and assurance. Not how we're feeling. Not the circumstances of our lives, but who we are in you that gives us hope and security now and forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.